You know, one of the most encouraging truths about the kingdom of God is the fact that there will be no more suffering. In fact, let's read about that in Revelation 21 and verse 4. Revelation 21 and verse 4. Notice this description of the post-millennial age. So this is after the millennium. And this is like the goal. This is where God is taking the entire world eventually. Revelation 21 and verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Now think about that. Think about what that means for us. Imagine a time of no more tears, or death, or sorrow, or crying, or pain. Any of that. This is almost impossible for us to conceive because that's what we know. Perhaps you're feeling it right now. You are in pain right now. And you're suffering in some way because that's the way life is now. But this says that there will be a time in the future when all of that will be gone. And there's so much suffering in this world today. In so many ways. If not with physical pain, perhaps with mental and emotional anxiety. And even this past year, since last feast and even before then, through the pandemic, which is just a precursor of what's to come, even more suffering. So how is God going to stop the suffering? The suffering that we're so acquainted with, that we live with every day, and that we've never known any any other way. Well, one primary way is through the healing that begins in the millennium. Healing, though, in every sense of the word, not only physically, but psychologically, and emotionally too, and even for the environment as well. A time to begin the process of complete and total universal healing. And so today we're going to focus on the subject of healing as it relates to God's plan that this feast pictures. Just one aspect of it, but a beautiful aspect of it. An awesome aspect of the millennium. We're going to first review where suffering began because it's important for us to understand that I believe that none of this was God's intent. And so we're going to see where it actually began. And we'll see how it has affected every human being who's ever lived, including us. And then we'll see how healing was one of the Messiah's primary missions while he was on the earth. That healing was a major part of his ministry. And then after that, we'll turn our attention to the future healing awaiting a world that desperately needs it. We're going to see that God's plan includes a restoration of the life He always intended for all beings to enjoy. And this is one of the most encouraging truths about what God has revealed through the Feast of Tabernacles, I believe. And the fact that when these days of mankind's rule under Satan's influence are fulfilled, an age of healing will occur. And the title of this sermon is The Healing of the Nations. The Healing of the Nations. So let's start by reviewing where suffering began by going to the actual beginning in John 1 and verse 1. John 1 and verse 1. This is actually before all the suffering began, but it's good to get our bearings and to make sure that we understand what the existence was like at that time. So the Gospel of John 1 and verse 1. You know this very well. You've read this many, many times. But we see here two beings in existence at that time. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, at this time, there were only two beings. And even that statement is not completely accurate because eternity, there is no time. But from our perspective, we have to put this somewhere. And it says in the beginning, and we see that what we have is oneness. One characteristic of that age, I believe, was peace. The sense is with these two beings, one of love, respect and cooperation. 
but no suffering. In fact, let's see what Jesus' description of his relationship with his father is in John 10 and verse 30. One of the most revealing scriptures in the Bible. Very simple statement that you've read many times, but I think reveals so much about God's intent and the way life was for them. The way their existence was. John 10 and verse 30. John 10 and verse 30, where it's just a simple sentence. I and my Father are one. Oneness in that relationship. But no suffering. Just cooperation, respect, love. All the things I believe God intends for His creation. Now, at some point, angelic beings were created. And we know this because by the time the earth was created, angels existed. And we read about that in Job 38. Very familiar scriptures. Let's go there to the Old Testament. Job 38. And verses 4 through 7. Job 38, beginning in verse 4. Where God asks Job the rhetorical question here, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job 38 and verse 4. And he says, Tell me if you have understanding. And of course, Job could not answer these questions because he wasn't there. Really, there were only two beings there. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Actually, more than two beings, as he reveals here in verse 5. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? And to what were its foundations fastened, or who laid its cornerstone? So the creation, the physical creation of what we know and understand. And But he says, where were you when I created all of this? But then he says in verse 7, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So obviously before the creation of the physical realm, this we see were angels, angelic beings had already existed. So they were created by that time. But this description implies an environment of peace and joy and cooperation. Continuing with the angelic realm added to those two beings. They were all sang together and they all shouted for joy because that was an accomplishment, a part of God's plan. Now, we don't know how long this age of peace lasted, but at some point, one of the highest created beings began to deviate. And that's where it all began to change. And let's read about that in Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. So just going forward a few pages to Ezekiel 28. And beginning in verse 11. It's talking of the king of Tyre as a type of this being that began to deviate. Part of the angelic realm. As it says here in Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 11, Moreover, the word of God, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And what he goes on to say here in verse 13 makes it obvious it cannot be talking about the king of Tyre. So he's talking about a being that was there. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. And the workmanship of of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you, you were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. And so this was a supremely wonderful created being. In verse 15 it says, You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. And so for who knows how long this continued, and he was part of all of that, that was in cooperation and no suffering at that point. 
until we come to the last sentence in that, the last part of that verse 15, till iniquity was found in you. In this one being, things changed on the inside. And from that point forward, everything changed. Deep inside this being, and we have no idea how long this change occurred, a change began. Resentment and bitterness toward God started and took root. And as with many sins, dwelling on the thought made it grow to where it ultimately consumed him, as it says in the first part of verse 16, by the abundance of your training, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. So obviously, he broke God's laws and he rebelled against God. Let's stop for a moment and consider what this change meant. Up till this time, peace, cooperation, and joy was all that was known among the created beings. It hearkens to the wonderful psalm, how good and how pleasant for brethren to dwell in unity. And when you do have that cooperation, when everyone is working together, everyone's on the same page, everyone has the same heart, it is awesome. And there is unity. The natural byproducts of this are happiness and contentment. And who knows for how long that continued until this time. But with only one being's dissatisfaction in the ensuing uprising of the rebellion of a third of the angels, this environment of peace was destroyed. And the same untainted peace and joy was forever changed. And because of this, God removed this being from this exalted place as we read in verse, in the rest is verse 16 and 17. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground, and I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. And Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so this was the major change. But this is all in the angelic realm. This was before human beings were created. Cast to his domain on this earth as Satan the adversary and deceiver. And from that point on, good and evil would coexist. And as long as they coexist, there would be suffering. But it's important for us to understand this is the origin. This is where it began before any human beings were created. So after this period of rebellion, God began His plan to expand His family through humans through a completely different creation that we read about in Genesis 2 and verse 7. So if you'll turn there now to Genesis 2 and verse 7. Genesis 2 and verse 7. So God began His plan with a single person. One man a living being. Genesis 2 and verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. But without the same spirit life as previously created beings, the angelic realm, he was made from physical material to signify the temporal nature of his, this creature's life. It would be temporary in this existence. And God created an idyllic and nurturing environment in which the man would live. Verse 8. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. A garden where other life was all around. Other physical life, plants and animals were there when the man was already was created. They were already there. And notice what specifically is named in verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And notice the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life. 
along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And let's notice another feature of this garden in verse 10. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. Now, it's no accident that these environmental features are specifically detailed in this description. We tend to focus on the man, the woman, and what happened with them, but it's important. Every word of God is inspired by God. And so a river here identified, and also the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Take special note of that specific tree and a river that are described in this account of man's origin. Because God then gives the man instructions that related to physical and ultimately spiritual life, beginning in verse 15, where he says, Then the Lord God put the man, uh, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, notice something very interesting about what God told Adam, an important part of his instruction here in verse 16. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, except the one tree. You can have as much of it as you want. Apparently, Adam was told that he could freely eat also of the tree of life. Not only on certain days, not waiting for a special time, but freely, abundantly, as much as he wanted to, and completely available to him. But along with this instruction, there's only one restriction. One, and that's it. Don't eat of this one tree, but of the rest of it, you may freely eat. Now, obviously, this was a test, one in which God gave Adam an open choice. Put him there to give him that opportunity to make his own choice. Later, God created a, for the man a wife, a being who came from the man and therefore was composed of the same material. And the summary of Adam and Eve's state of being is being described is described in verse 25. So if you'll drop down there to Genesis 2 and verse 25, the last verse in the chapter, which is kind of a summary statement of the state of their lives at that point. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now there's a lot in that statement of being not ashamed. A lot in not only physically, description of being naked, but also mentally as well. No shame. No guilt. No suffering. And to me, this implies perfect health in every sense of the word. Physically, psychologically, and emotionally, this was their state. Completely free of any disease, completely free of anxiety, or any suffering. But freedom of choice has also always been a part of God's design. It was true for the angels. It was true for these created beings as well. And that freedom opened the door for suffering to enter, which it did in the very next verse. Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said to you, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like Him, knowing good and evil, and that's a good thing. You want that. He's holding something back from you, causing her to doubt. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate.
Satan knew exactly what to do to cause doubt and to influence the woman and the man to make the wrong choice. And so that's what they did. They took of the fruit. And in verse 7, after they took of the fruit, then their eyes, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Well, this was the result of taking of the fruit, of the wrong choice. But notice it says, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Well, we just read at the last verse of of chapter 2 that they were naked then. So there was no change from the outside. What was the difference then? The difference was in the perception they now had. Instead of purity, their eyes were now open to good and evil. There was no change on the outside, but inside, where the change happened with Lucifer, they would never be completely innocent again. And for the first time, shame and embarrassment entered their hearts. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They never had to do that before. But now they did. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard the voice of your, in, heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. This is the beginning of human mental health, health issues. Psychologically, feeling shame. Before they were completely unashamed with nothing to hide. They didn't have to hide. And now they covered themselves and are fearful, filled with guilt and shame. And of course, this fear caused Adam to not take responsibility, and he blamed his wife, verse 11. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And of course, he blamed his wife and said, Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So they each blamed the other. And now begins a series of curses as a result of this one wrong choice. And everything changes from here. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, you, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The prophecy of Jesus Christ. Going on in verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, here's the first use of that word, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Verse 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So here's the result of one mistake, one massive mistake. Instead of contentment, joy, and happiness, with perfect physical and mental health, life is now cursed for all human beings. In fact, God's ideal state that we read about in Genesis 2 is forever changed. And what's more, this idyllic environment is then blocked from them. Genesis 3, verse 22 Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And notice the sentence doesn't end. God doesn't finish the sentence. Because that's enough. We can't allow them to take of the tree of life now in this state. 
Therefore, the Lord God, verse 23, sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so direct access to that tree was lost. So this was the unfortunate beginning for humans. You go on to read the rest of the story of Genesis and much of the Old Testament, and it is one of suffering for the majority of mankind, of which there are many causes, but along with curses that are the natural result of sin, disease also entered in. And even here, God says there is cause and effect. Let's notice where he talks about that in Exodus 15, in verse 26. Exodus 15 and verse 26. Talking to Moses as a representative of the children of Israel, breaking into the sentence in Exodus 15 and verse 26, he said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, if you do all of that, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So we see that disease can come from the result of wrong choices too, but also that it's the natural result of sin. And many of the statutes deal with disease and quarantine laws, of which we're very aware after this year. But notice one very important statement about what God is able to do there at the the very last sentence of that verse. I am the Lord who heals you. So no matter the reason for the infirmity, God is able to heal. And this special blessing was attached to diligent obedience as we read in this verse. Because on the other hand, He said they would suffer for disobedience. And so disease would be a part of the suffering. The point is is that from the time of Adam, mankind has suffered as a result of similar wrong choices made over and over and over again. The cumulative effects which leads to today and which is going forward going to get worse. But let's notice this fact that it comes down to choices that are made in Romans 5, going to the New Testament now, Romans 5 and verse 12. Romans 5 and verse 12. It's like leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It grows and expands. As Paul writes here in Romans 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And this is why we have the world we do today. And why many of us suffer. The entire world has followed the pattern of sin that produces suffering of all kinds. Physical and mental health issues have caused misery for billions around the planet. But it's important to remember that this kind of suffering was never God's intent. In fact, let's now see one of His Son's primary missions while He was on this earth because it has everything to do with release from this suffering eventually. So by the time Jesus began his ministry, there appears to have been an epidemic of all kinds of infirmities in that society. And healing was a major part of his ministry, as we read in Matthew 4, verses 23 through 25. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 23. Matthew 3, I'm sorry, Matthew 4, verse 23. We'll read verses 23 through 25. It says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame went through throughout all Syria, and they brought to him, because he had this ability, they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. He had an ability that no one else did. And so, of course, if you'd been suffering your whole life, you were going to find this person. You are going to find this man to see if you could be healed. Or your loved one could be healed. Because this was monumental as a part of his ministry. But notice the results of this. Verse 25, great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. If you knew, if you knew the right doctor to go to that would get rid of the pain that you're feeling, you would probably move heaven and earth to get to that person. Well, that's what these people were doing. This man could change their lives through healing. But notice the description here. The causes of these problems were myriad. Many, many, many types of disease and suffering. And the simple truth is that He just healed them. The ones that He had opportunity to. And this ability created a never-ending line of people to be healed because there's so much suffering. And through the Gospel accounts, there are at least 27 separate recorded healings and those are just the occasions that are specified for a particular reason. But obviously, as the scripture we just read shows, there were many, many, many more that were not recorded. And this shows that Jesus spent a great deal of his ministry healing. He was a major part of his message of hope. Because healing was always part of the Messiah's prophesied function that we read about in Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17 is part of the reason why He came to this earth. Part of it was to show that He had the power to do this, and the other part was to give them hope. But it caused Him to be known for this ability. Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17. Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17. When evening had come, they brought to Him many who were demon-possessed. And He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by, the Isaiah, by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he, he Himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Quoted from the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53, the healing of physical infirmities was a sign of who He was, prophesied to be that Messiah and have that ability but notice one example that shows Jesus' heart in healing. I love this example in Luke 13. Instead of just having a generic view that He could heal all these people, we see the lives that were touched through an example like this in Luke 13. And what a difference it made for the people who were healed, who had been suffering for so long with their infirmities. Luke 13, we'll read verses 10 through 17. Luke 13, 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up for 18 years, bent over that way. 18 years is longer than some of you have been alive. But that's a long time to live with a, with a suffering and a, an infirmity like this. Verse 12, But when Jesus saw her, He called her to Him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. Loosed. I love that term. You are loosed, freed from your infirmity. And He lays, laid His hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Of course she would glorify God. Could you imagine being bent over for 18 years? And then, in an instant, standing straight with no pain or suffering. 
But the ruler of the synagogue, verse 14, answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, but not on the Sabbath day. It's crazy. But notice what Jesus says in verse 15. Then the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, and notice what he says here, being a daughter of Abraham, having value, having worth, much more worth than any ox or donkey, whom Satan has bound. And notice what he says now. Think of it. Put yourself in her place. For 18 years she's been bent over. Needing. Healing. Crying out to God. Who knows how many times. It's just amazing that he says, think of it. Think of how she has lived her life. For 18 years. Ought not this woman be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? A day that is to enhance life. It's the appropriate day for this to happen. But we see his heart in this. You can imagine the joy he brought. It brought to him to be able to loose this woman from her infirmity. Holistic healing was what Jesus was all about as the Messiah. And He granted His disciples the same ability to heal as we read about in Luke 9. So going back a few pages to Luke 9, verses 1 and 2. He didn't keep this for Himself. Notice Luke 9, verses 1 and 2. says, Then He called His twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them to preach the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. So not only limiting it to himself, but expanding it from there through his disciples. And it continues in the church today. James 5, the book of James toward the end of the Bible. James 5, verses 13 through 15. James 5, verse 13, where... James asked the church, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. A wonderful ability that God has given through the ministry. It's not us. We don't do it ourselves. It's nothing we do on our own. It's what God does through us. But the point is that healing has been a part of God's work since Jesus' time. Because God remains the healer He promised to be that we read about in the Old Testament. But before we go on, let's review what we've covered. We saw that the cause for suffering began with one misguided being. And God planned to expand His family starting with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. And as a result of their sin, human suffering ensued. And in the process, they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And access to the Tree of Life was blocked for all humans. We then saw that one of Jesus' primary functions as Messiah was to heal. And this ability to heal has been passed down to the ministry of the church Because God is the healer and has the prerogative to heal as He wills. And from this synopsis, we see that we are not yet, and you know this very well, we are not yet at the point spoken of of no more tears, death, sorrow, crying, or pain. We're very much still a part of that, part of our experience. In fact, all healing that has occurred thus far has been limited. Even with Jesus. As amazing as His ability was, It was a person here, a person there, but certainly not universal. But the fantastic news is God's plan for the future includes universal healing in the age to come. 
And a major hope for the millennium is that universal healing is coming. And this is when the rest of the Messianic prophecy is fulfilled that we read about in Isaiah 61. Let's go back there now. Isaiah 61. Verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 61. One through four. And when Jesus read this section of Isaiah in the synagogue, he only read part of it that applied to his first coming and being the Messiah at that time. But there's more here that we read about in Isaiah 61 and verse one, Isaiah 61 and verse one. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. And he sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Notice, heal the brokenhearted. That's pain inside. Psychological pain. Emotional pain. And to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And not necessarily in physical chains, but those who are bound by sin and also the suffering that sin causes. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And to comfort all who mourn. And to console those who mourn in Zion. And to give them beauty for ashes, the the oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may glorify. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So obviously this is in the millennial age. Looking forward to that time of restoration after the devastation at the end of this age. But beginning with Israel, restorative healing from God. But it doesn't stay with Israel. Let's read about in Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 1. And notice some elements that are brought into this description that we read about in Genesis. Isaiah 44 and verse 1. Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, And Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit on your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. They, sh- they will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. And one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call himself by the name of Jacob. And another will write with his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. Going out from there. And we see in verse 3, water symbolizes the healing agent of God's Spirit that Israel will then have access to. And this will bring healing to all who drink in of this water. But the same healing also will become available to all, as we read about in Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah 55, in verse 1. I love how this begins. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 1, where he says, Ho, or pay attention, or listen, or hark, or, you know, any, to get their attention. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You're looking for healing. You're looking for satisfaction. You're looking for an end to your suffering. He says, so in verse 2, why do you spend money on what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? 
Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. And surely you will call a nation you do not know and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So expanding to all nations at that time, he is offering what he starts with Israel, with the healing that comes to them. But notice verses 12 and 13 He goes on to say, For you shall go out with joy and be led with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. Instead of that curse as a result of Adam, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for the name, for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Joy is restored for both people and the land. Holistic healing for all life. But what is the source of this healing water in particular? We read about that as a major part of this, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's read about that in Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, verses 8 and 9. Zechariah 14, verses 8 and 9. It says, And in that day it shall be that living waters, not just waters, but living waters, shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that day it shall be the Lord is, notice, one. And His name is one. Bringing back that unity of God's intent and what He wanted for all humans, that was ruined in the Garden of Eden, even before that with Lucifer, coming back to his original vision for life. But it talks here of water. That living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. We saw that there was water in the Garden of Eden and a tree. And specifically, the source of this living water was revealed to Ezekiel. Beginning in Ezekiel 40, a vision of a millennial temple is described there in Ezekiel 40. So if you'll go there to Ezekiel 47, we'll read just a section of this to get a sense and to see how this healing occurs and what causes it. Ezekiel 47, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read this from the English Standard Version. Ezekiel 47, beginning in verse 1. Where it says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from, behold, the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling, and notice, trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep at that point. Again, he measured a thousand and he led me through the water and it was knee deep. So getting higher. But again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. 
And again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the the bank of the river, and as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to into the Arabah and enters the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the, water, the river goes, every living creature that swam will live, that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. From Mr. John O'Gwen's Bible study that you can find online, he said this, Verses 1-12 through make plain that there is going to be a literal river of living water issuing from the throne of Christ. And that is going to symbolize the Holy Spirit flowing out from Him to all the nations. He goes on to say, remember in Revelation 16 and verse 3, you don't have to go there, just refer to it. Revelation 16 and verse 3, at that time, which we reviewed probably at the uh, Feast of Trumpets, the waters over all the earth, the seas and the rivers are going to be turned to blood and all the fish are going to die. You know, people read in Revelation, all the water turned to blood and the fish die and they say, how can life continue? Well, Mr. O'Gwen goes on to say, The way it is going to continue is a river is going to spring forth. When Christ returns and the Mount of Olives cleaves in two, this great rip valley occurs. There's going to come up a gurgling spring that is going to spread out. And as this water flows, anything it touches is going to be healed and the fish are going to live. So rereading verse 12. On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. And their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. And their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So not only the waters, but the trees for healing. And Mr. O'Gwen comments about this by saying the fruit is going to be there for the healing of the nations. This is what God is going to do at this time in the millennium, starting with Ezekiel's temple or the temple that Ezekiel had revealed to him about the millennial temple. And why would God heal this way? Using literal water and trees. Well, Mr. Gwen comments about that. He says, many times God does something outwardly or physically that people can see, what they can relate to, what they can quantify, what they can verify. And particularly when he's dealing with a nation, with a world, he does something outward, physical, that they can see to teach a spiritual lesson. Just as life emanates out from the throne of God in a physical way, through the water and all of that, it is symbolic of a spiritual healing and a spiritual relief that will take place. Because that's where the actual healing occurs. A spiritual healing. But he uses these physical elements to portray that. The point is, healing is at the heart of what God will do in the millennium. From a world devastated from the culmination of universal sin, of which we're suffering from, which we know too well, to a world that will be restored as God's teaching and miraculous healing spreads throughout the earth, eventually coming to Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. Mr. Weston referenced this verse, these verses last night in his opening night message and I didn't originally have this in the, in the sermon, but they were so good I needed to add them. Isaiah 35, so inspiring because this is where it's going. In the millennial age, now there's going to be a lot that will need to be restored. There's going to be a lot of devastation. 
And we're going to be a part of this, hopefully. We're going to be a part of doing our part, whatever part that is that God wants us to do. Hopefully we, are all of our suffering, will end the first resurrection. But this is what He has in store for the people living at that time. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The actual eyes of the blind shall be opened. And obviously, of course, spiritually, this refers to them as well. But the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And then the lame shall leap like a deer, like that woman who suffered for 18 years, glorifying God because of being in total health. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. Notice, for waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. What a wonderful time to look forward to. But it goes beyond that. Because after the millennium, we finally come to the time where we began this sermon. Let's go back there again. Revelation 21 beginning in verse 1. Revelation 21 and verse 1. One of the most inspiring passages in all the Bible that I believe we should read often to give us a vision of where God is taking this and where it's ultimately going to be. When we're suffering right now, when we are in such anguish and pain, and we don't know what to do, and we just want it all to end, God gave us a vision to inspire us that it's not always going to be like this. Revelation 21 and verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he said, He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, verse 6, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of water of life freely. There's that word again, coming full circle from where it began. I will give of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So notice the same methods will be used. Healing waters emanating from this place. But notice what else in Revelation 22 in verse 1. Revelation 22 in verse 1. Where it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Talk about full circle. The tree of life reappears, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. A very special tree giving life. But this time, not just for Adam and Eve, but for the benefit of all. And giving them the life that God originally intended before they took of the wrong tree. And thereby living with the curse of that choice that brought the need for healing. And so, yes, too many right now are suffering in this life. Too many in this room are suffering. Too many watching at home are suffering. Suffering in every possible way, physically, emotionally, mentally. But be assured that this was not God's intent for humans. 
And one of the most encouraging truths God has revealed about the future is that He has a plan to end all universal suffering. And what a glorious time to look forward to and to pray for. That future time when His kingdom is fully established so that finally complete healing will come to the nations.